We've seen Israel cross a raging river. We've seen Israel topple a mighty city. And now we find Israel utterly paralyzed after experiencing a staggering defeat at Ai. What Israel experienced was shocking. They had all the momentum. And they come to Ai and things come to a grinding halt in the conquest and they're defeated by a far smaller city than what they experienced their victory in at Jericho. And it's not, it's not hard to imagine the profundity with which they are absolutely paralyzed at this stage. You know what it's like. Many of you know what it's like because many of you have come to understand the gospel, that you have no righteousness of your own, that it's not by your good works that you can be saved, but it's only by the work of Christ. And you're beginning to recognize that repentance, repentance is not just some acquaintance that you once knew when you became a Christian, but it's becoming a dear friend. It's the tool by which you continue to walk in a Christian life. And you're coming to understand that your righteousness is not your own. And that Jesus Christ is your righteousness. And therefore, with that motivation, you're joyfully and willing to go and do what his word calls us to do. And then, poof. You find yourself utterly paralyzed by addiction. Things are going great in your life, and then, poof. Your boss tells you that after the month, you no longer have a job here. Things are going great. You find a great church. You finally find a place for people that you really enjoy getting to know where they're normal and you can be a sinner and you can struggle over your sin and you feel welcome in your community groups. And then, poof, you realize that you do not feel welcome in your own home, that your parents are getting a divorce that your teenage son or daughter not only doesn't like you, but is rejecting the faith that you've tried to bring them up in all of their life. It is not hard to imagine being paralyzed in the Christian life, is it? And in this text, God engages Israel when they are at their lowest. And I want to talk about this text together with three headings. And I want you to listen to these three headings as I read the entire chapter of Joshua chapter 8. It is a long reading, but I want you to listen for these three headings. The first heading of the chapter of Israel chapter 8 is that Israel, in the face of their utter paralysis, they find themselves between the promise, paralyzed, you promised us that we'd get into the land. But we're not in it. They're between the promise, they're before the plunder, and they're beneath the peak. These three word images will help guide us through Joshua chapter 8. So if you're willing and able, let's stand together as we read from Joshua chapter 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. 
And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai and they chose, Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them and they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. And so we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. And so Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up and he and all of the elders of Israel before the people to Ai and all the fighting men who were with them went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. And he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched his hand out, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them so that they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and they brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them and all the men to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword. All Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword and all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. 
But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he had stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder according to the word the Lord of the Lord that was commanded to Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a heap of stones which stands there to this day. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stone a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with the elders and the officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first, to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, friends, but the word of God stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray as we begin to focus our attention on what your word means and means for us today, a story of a text that happened thousands of years ago, that you would help us, Father, to listen well. And oh, Father, that you'd be kind to us to bring the meaning of the text to us, and that you would help us to see the beauty of your faithfulness to your covenant people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a long text, isn't it? Y'all did great. The teaching of the text is this. That God engages his people to actively obey his word in light of his presence and his renewal. That's the teaching of Joshua chapter 8. I'll say it again. That God engages his people to actively obey his word in light of his presence and his renewal. So let's talk about this with three headings. First, between the promise, before the plunder, and lastly, beneath the peak, between the promise. The first thing that I want you to see is that in the midst of a stunning defeat, paralyzed, not knowing what to do next, God engages his people. Look what it says in verse 1. It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and be dismayed. What? We just stoned a member of our own people. Do not fear and be dismayed. Do not fear and be dismayed. 
Take, fighting men with you, arise and go up to Ai. Well, didn't we just do this? See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. Ah, uh, I do not see. We just tried to do this, Lord, and we were stunningly defeated by a much smaller city than Jericho. God engages them. Verse 7, Then you will rise up from the ambush, and you will seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. Verse 18, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Joshua, not only will I give you the city, I'm going to tell you how I'm going to give you the city. I want you to stretch out your hand, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. Please hear me. There is a very important biblical principle of interpretation in this passage. You must see it. Throughout Joshua, we see a very important principle of biblical interpretation. And it goes like this. God gives and we must take. God gives the land to Israel. Now they must go and conquer it. God gives them the river. Now they must go and cross it. God gives them the city. Now they must march around it. God gives and Israel must take. It's an important biblical principle of interpretation because it's one of the most central principles in reading the Bible. God gives and we take. God shows you mercy. He makes what is foolishness to the Greeks, this truth that a man was born of a Jewish carpenter to an unwed mother lives the life you could not live, dies a death for you, is put on a pike, a cross, outside the city to be accursed for you. And three days later, he rises again from the dead. It's foolishness to the world to believe that. And yet, in the preaching of the gospel, and hearing it, God says, oh, I love you. And he opens your heart to believe that you have no righteousness of your own and that you come to trust Jesus at his word and you believe it. And he gives you through his grace, his unmerited favor towards you and you respond with repentance and faith. Or God draws you in as a son or a daughter in the same way. He calls you to himself, and then he says, I want you to go and I want you to obey my word. God gives us new identities. We must therefore become who we are. God gives. We must therefore take. We, I love it when Paul says in uh, 1 Thessalonians, for example, he says, for this is the will of God for you. You ever wonder what the will of God is? This is God's will for you, your sanctification. God has given you grace. Now you should take it. Become who you are. Obey God at his word. You stand between the promises, friends, right now. Things are going great in your life, and then boom, something you did not expect nor could ever have expected happens in your life, and you feel paralyzed, and you don't know what to do next. 
And the good news of the gospel is that God doesn't just call you to believe the gospel and say, go to church, have fun, good luck. He engages his people. Repeatedly, he engages his people. And here when Israel is at their lowest, he engages them. He says, I want you to go and seize the land. And for Israel, this was a very physical land. But for you, it is the land that you live in now and will live in for all eternity. It is the land the Lord has given you, as we've said throughout the book of Joshua. For us as the church today, we're not talking about a geopolitical nation state in the Near East. We are talking about the land of your hearts, which the Lord asks for us to seize parcel by parcel. Do you know how in World War II, do you know how they used to take Pacific Islands whenever they would come upon one? The Allies would fly over the Pacific Islands at a 30,000 foot view, and they would take aerial photos of that island. And then they would come in with warships, and they would throw battlements upon the island to, to loosen the armed uh, uh, missiles and other uh, artillery to loosen the battlements of the island. And then they would send Marines in. And those Marines would storm the beaches, and they would go and they would take that island parcel by parcel. The book of Joshua is the exact same the same dynamic is happening here. God is saying, I want you to be mine, parcel by parcel. I have called you. You're justified in my sight. Now become who you are. He actively engages you, and he especially engages you when you're paralyzed, when you don't know what to do next. And he says to you, my covenant with you still stands, friend that you did not expect these circumstances, not a hair can fall from your head without my sovereign command. I am the Lord your God. You will be my people, and I will be with you. God says to them that the battle belongs to the Lord. Whose responsibility is it ultimately that we grow in Christ? Ultimately, whose responsibility is that? It is the Lord's responsibility. It is the Lord's. He will see us through. It is his faithfulness that perseveres to the end. You can never lose your salvation. He will see you through. But at the same time, it's our responsibility to seize the land. God says the battle is the Lord's. He doesn't just tell us that the battle is the Lord's. He says the operations by which you are to win the battle are the Lord's. Listen to what he says to Joshua. He says, do not fear, I am with you. The battle is mine. I have not only fought for you, but I have sacrificed myself for you, church, the new Israel. And he gives very specific guidance here. He says, Joshua, I want you to take men, 30,000. Now, commentators are divided whether there are one ambush or there were two ambushes. But the point is the same. Whether there, were, there was one ambush or two ambushes in the west behind the city, the Lord said, Joshua, I want you to take men and I want you to hide them in ambush behind the city, to the west of the city. The west to you. And I'm going to put people to the north and I'm going to lead them out. And when they see Israel coming again at Ai, just as they did before, all the mighty men out of Ai will follow you. And then the ambushes will rise up. And when the men have left, you will go and you will attack the city and you will set it to flame. And whenever the 
Soldiers of Ai look back and they see their city in ruins and in smoke. They will be confused. Do we go back and try to save our town? Or do we turn and fight the people we're chasing who will by that time have a much easier opportunity to defeat them? God doesn't just say you're going to take the city, but he gives us specific instructions on how to take the city. The point here is that God has given them a plan and that we are dependent upon God for not only our salvation, but for our Christian living. Do not separate those two things. Your justification is by grace. God declaring you righteous in his sight because of the work of Jesus. And your sanctification is also by grace. But he expects you to do what he asks you to do. He's given you the power to do it. Now go and trust him to seize the land. Do not fear. Between the promise Second, before the plunder. In the context of Jericho, you may remember that God said, you're going to take Jericho, but listen, hear me, God says, do not take anything for yourself in Jericho. And the reason why Achan was stoned is because he did precisely that which God told him not to do. He saw the beautiful Babylonian cloak. He took and he hid it in his tent. But here at Ai, God says, when you stand before the plunder, you can take the plunder for yourself. Verse, tw- uh, verse 2 says, And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its livestock. You, we would expect him to say, shall not take. But he says, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Here he permits people to take the plunder of Ai in a way he did not permit them to take the plunder in Jericho. And why he permits them in Ai but not in Jericho, we do not know. But we do know that God never intends to be ingenerous to you. God always intends to be generous to his people. He does not want you to be impoverished. He wants you to have all that you need to rely upon him. God is not going to leave you on your own. That's the whole point of the book of Joshua. He comes to you again and again and again and engages you and you feel paralyzed and perplexed about what the next steps are. One of the greatest temptations, I think, in my own heart is to be discontent. Whether it's the size of the church or it's the way my family is operating or it's whatever it is. To be content is extremely elusive for us. And when you are ungrateful, you very easily slip into discontentment. And when you're discontent, then you very, very quickly fall into setting something else as central in your life besides the Lord. And when you begin to set something else, even a good thing that is central in your life, in the place of the Lord, then you become an idolater. Some have called this serpent theology. That is to say that you begin to believe that God is not as good as he says that he is to you. Or you begin to believe that God is withholding good from you, just like the serpent 
Satan said to Eve in the garden, listen, Eve, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he's holding back the good things from you. Just eat it. And she believed it. And I often do too. And so do you. Before the plunder of Ai, Israel was free to take. And those of you who right now are in the midst of paralysis, you're discontent, you're frustrated, you're angry. Listen, do not confuse your anger at your circumstances with God being ingenerous to you. He is generous to you. He wants to bless you, not in a material way necessarily, but he wants to remind you again of his covenant promises to you that they are yes and amen in him. And at the root of that discontentment is an ingratitude. You drive around Owasso this week, and what is the, the character quality of the month for the city? It's gratefulness. Oh, how much we have to be grateful for, friends. God wants to be for you. He intends to be for you everything you need. And even though you don't see everything now, doesn't mean he's withholding good from you. Before the plunder, God is with you. Now, I've said this in passing before, but it needs a few moments of reflective thought again. There are some tough passages in the book of Joshua, some violent ones. I want you to listen to verse 24 again. I just want you to let it wash over you for a second. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness, when they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword... All Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. Verse 28. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Now, the destruction of Ai creates a lot of problems for a lot of people, doesn't it? They killed 12,000 people. And the question often goes like this. How could a good God destroy 12,000 people. But that question has an assumption that clarifies the confusion of the very question itself. Because when people ask that question, what they really mean is they want to insert the word innocent before the word people. The question that they ask is, how could a good God kill 12,000 innocent inhabitants? Innocent people, which assumes what? That they're innocent, which assumes that by nature, humankind is generally good. Let me ask you a question. I may have used this illustration before with some of you, so forgive me if it's a repeat, but like, let's imagine that we put relative goodness on a scale of zero to 100. And let's say that uh, 
we took uh, Mother Teresa. Hmm? Mother Teresa. Let's put Mother Teresa on the scale. Where would she be on a scale of 0 to 100? How, how about 98? Okay, 98. Now let's take Osama bin Laden. Or let's take some historically, uh, you know, notorious person. Charles Manson, Hitler. Let's take Osama bin Laden. Where would you put Osama bin Laden? Negative 28. Well, let's keep him on the scale. Let's say Osama bin Laden would be a three. Now, okay, Osama bin Laden's a three. Mother Teresa's a 98. Where are you? Where would you put yourself on this scale? Well, somewhere between Osama bin Laden and Mother Teresa, right? What is the problem with the scale? The problem with the scale is that the distance between 99.9999 and 100 is infinite. God is holy. And no matter how you measure goodness with man's relative scale of goodness, there is an infinite distance between us, no matter how good you want to measure yourself by, and God's holiness. God's judgment of humanity is always more severe than we want, but it is less severe than we deserve. What do I mean by that? It's more severe than we want. That's pretty easily understandable. It's worse than we want. We don't want anybody to be judged. But you know what? It is not as severe as you deserve. Because every single one of us deserve to be judged by an infinitely holy God. Because whether you're Mother Teresa, 98, listen, there's still an infinite distance, isn't there, between the 99.99999 and 100. The question is, why has God been so patient with us? Remember, God did not destroy the Canaanites back in Genesis chapter 12 because he said the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. God was patient with the Canaanites. And Romans 2 tells us that God's patience will not last forever. And God justly judged the Canaanites. It was more than fair it was more than fair. How do I know that it was more than fair? Because what if we left it to your hands? God killed 12,000 people. Just in the 20th century alone, in the wars in the world, 60 million people died. So let's compare 60 million to 12,000. God's pretty sparing, isn't he? Whatever relative scale of goodness you use, friends, we are guilty in his sight. And the good news of the gospel is that God comes to those who deserve to be judged. And he says, I'm drawing you to myself, just like he did with Israel through Abraham, the son of a moon worshiper, and says, you are my people. I'm going to be faithful to you. And I'm going to glorify my covenant faithfulness through you. So if you're struggling with a passage in AI of the destruction of a city at the hand of the one true God, I want you to recognize that he was sparing 
because we deserve far worse. Between the promise, before the plunder, and now beneath the peak. Before I go to the third point, let me just say that the, the killing of the king of Ai seems particularly brutal, doesn't it? They hang him. And I want you to know that the hanging of the king was not his form of death. The hanging of a king in the ancient Near East was a sign of the curse. Because God's covenant blessings had blessings and his covenant cursings were a curse. And all those who did not reside inside God's covenant family to receive those blessings received his covenant cursings. And here the king of Ai, killed by the sword, but hanged as a symbol of God's covenant cursings so that everybody who would see the head of the king on a pike outside of that city would know that God is holy and that this is the just judgment everyone deserves if it weren't for his grace. It reminds us of another king who was put on a pike outside the city, doesn't it? Another one who was cursed. Cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree, Deuteronomy says. And Jesus Christ, your Savior, received the just punishment, the just penalty that we deserved. And he was held out outside the city as a curse, receiving all the covenant curses upon himself so that you might receive the covenant blessings of his faithfulness to you. Between the promise before the plunder and lastly beneath the peak. The end of uh, Joshua 8 is really unexpected because Mount Ebal is 20 miles from Ai. And Joshua gets all of the men and all the women, all the people of Israel, and he pulls them out and they stand between this very natural amphitheater in the valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Something Moses asked them to do, commanded them to do before his death when he looked to the west over the Jordan River and he saw two peaks. Ebal and Gerizim, and he says, you will proclaim God's word to the people on those peaks. And here Joshua is fulfilling what Moses commanded him to do. God is pulling them away to participate in corporate worship. That's what's happening in Mount Ebal. He's saying, I want to get you above, I want you to see the heap of stones at Ai. There's seven heaps of stones throughout the book of Joshua. Here we have Three, they're seeing. They're seeing Ai, they're seeing Achan, and they're seeing the stones by the Jordan River. He's pulling them away in worship. And he's saying, I want you to reflect on the covenant blessings and the covenant curses of the Lord. It is the exact same thing that we do in corporate worship as God's people, isn't it? Because the essence of sin is forgetfulness. And you come to worship not because by coming to worship, God sees that you checked in on Facebook and he'll love you more. You come to worship because God wants to change you in corporate worship. This is his ordained means to change you, to make you more and more like him, to give you one day in seven when you rest in his presence and you recognize that the rhythm of work and rest and worship should punctuate your life. It is how you grow to believe his covenant promises are true. If you watch me on a Saturday afternoon, on most Saturday afternoons in the fall, you will find me watching football. And if you ever see me watching football after the game's over, I fast forward through football. And if you watch most guys fast forward through football, what do they do? What do they, they, they fast forward 
through the commercials, through the timeouts, and they fast forward through the huddles, don't they? Just get to the action. So if you watch me, I fast forward all the way through the huddle, just to get to the snap, and then I'm going to watch it. That's the exact same thing most people do with their Christian life. The really important part is the game, the action. Just fast forward through the huddle. And so people do not understand the value of corporate worship. The huddle is where the communication happens to know what to go out and do in the play. The huddle is where the team comes back together and says to you, hey, listen, we're going to do better this time. We're together. I know you're hurting. Let's push through. The huddle is where you recharge and renew. It's the same way in worship. The holy huddle, to use an overused metaphor, the place where you hear again and again God's word proclaimed to you to then know what to do when you go out. Corporate worship is the engine of your transformation. And dare I say, it's even the engine of your personal transformation. Because you need the community of faith to help you grow. Some of you, even this week, have talked to me about very significant issues in your life. They're significant, and some of them are very hard. And if you went at it on your own, you would be a goner, overwhelmed. But when you're able to bring those to the community in the right time and space, and you let, you let people begin to carry your burden along with you. You have different people who have different gifts and different aspects of the beauty of Jesus are refracted in their faces as they tell you, we're with you. And through their voice, it is as though God's body, Jesus' body, the body of Christ, are wrapping their arms around you saying, we are with you. That is why it is so important, so important for those of us who are in transition in churches, who are looking for a new church, to be able to find and settle in one. It is hard, and it, there are good questions to ask in that transition. But the value of becoming a member, not just a participator in a church, is so important because you are yoked together to hear the gospel proclaimed again and again, week after week. So, we want to be a people where we proclaim the covenant blessings and we proclaim the covenant curses. God's word is full of what we cannot possibly do without God's help. And if you try to obey the Ten Commandments on your own, you are cursing yourself. So Romans 3.20 says, if you try to do the works of the law, nobody can do those. You're asking to be accursed if you try to obey what God's law tells you to do without first recognizing what he has done. God gives and we take. And I know I'm preaching to the choir when I say this, but one of the principal ways that you learn how to do that is in corporate worship. You feel the people around you listening to the same message. You have brothers and sisters locked in arms who are thinking about the same sermon when they talk about them at community groups. You're entering into life together. You push back against your sense of discontentment. You see how grateful you are for the things God has given you. For it could be worse 
who could be the king of AI. But God comes to us between the promise, before the plunder, and beneath the peak in worship. And I want you to know that God engages his people to actively obey his word in the presence of his rest. And so if you're between the promises, I want you to know, if you feel like you're paralyzed, you're stuck, if you've heard God's promise wash over you, you're just waiting for it to be fulfilled in you, I want you to know that God is with you. Because we all live between the times of Christ's first coming and his second coming. And if you're before the plunder, I want you to know God wants to be good to you. He is good. He always intends to be good to you. He is not withholding good from you. Believe that. Trust him. And beneath the peak, worship is the engine of our corporate transformation. And in just a moment, when you come to this table, he reminds us of that yet again. You are the apple of his eye, church. You are his trophy. Do you know that? You are his trophy. He gave his son to win you. As sons and daughters, be grateful for your father's affection for you. And if you do not yet believe the gospel, friends, today is the day of salvation. Believe it beneath the peak in worship. Don't let those covenant curses be yours. Believe Christ and receive the covenant blessings that he has procured for you when he died on the cross for your sins and he rose again on the third day to secure once and for all the covenant blessings for you, his trophies. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that though we are insecure and we struggle with untold number of sins, yet in our struggle between the promises, you remind us that you're with us. And not only that you're with us, but that you desire to be good to us. And not only that you desire to be good to us, that you want to renew us in worship together. So, Father, would you help us in corporate worship to be renewed, to be strengthened, to go out and live our callings in light of what you have done for us. Thank you, Christ, for helping us to seize the parcels of our heart and our soul piece by piece with your help. You've given. Help us to take in obedience to you with the power that you give us to do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we prepare to give our tithes and offerings, we're going to ask um, Jim Wingo if he would pray for our offertory this morning. And before Jim prays, I want you to know that on December the 11th, December the 11th, we are going to have our annual Christmas offering. And it is our goal in this church on that one Sunday to give $40,000. We're giving $40,000 for two reasons. 
That's our goal. The first reason is to finish in the black, to finish our general operating budget in the black and to finish strong. And the second reason is because we want to begin to have the means to provide for a second pastor in our church. As we continue to grow the youth ministry, our community group ministry, our adult discipleship ministries, there are many things where there is pastoral care needed that the elders and I are not able to do alone. And so on December 11th, we're going to begin to give toward finishing in the black and toward beginning to have the resources to bring on an assistant pastor for our church. Jim, thank you, brother, for praying. As we contemplate our offering, we ask, dear Lord, that you touch our hearts with the blessing of generosity to provide only one of the resources necessary for the sustenance of your church. And we ask, dear God, that the expenditure of these resources be done according to your will. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray this. Amen. God gives his people means of grace. He gives the church the means of grace of baptism and the means of grace of the Lord's table. They are not means in any way of salvation. They are means of encouragement in the Christian life to remind you that when you're paralyzed by what to do next, God is with you. They are ways to engage you. They are ways to remind you of his faithfulness to you. The night that Jesus was betrayed... In the upper room, he had a meal with his disciples. And at that meal, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner after supper, 